Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew Kent McCarran. And we're going to pick up the rolling freight of the Proverbs of Hell by William Blake. And we're going to pick up where we left off. I think this is our seventh or eighth or ninth, eighth maybe, session. Mm. And, um, you know, we're maybe a quarter or a third of the way through maybe. You know, this is endless, just like we wanted. Yeah, I just have the page I printed out from the internet, so I don't know how, I forget how long the whole deal is, but it's Uh nice to look at just a page of it, beginning our prisons are built with stones of law, brothels with bricks of religion, that's the top one. I don't want to give away the last one because uh, we uh, haven't done it yet. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to sort of briefly segue on, Sparrow, rising out of our conversation the other night, Mm. or excuse me, last night, was we talked about the possibility of starting a church. (laughs) Yeah, and I was thinking about that, and I I was increasingly, you know, warming to the idea. Cheapers, I even thought of... um, you know, the structure that this church or this gathering might assume. And Mm. that is that maybe we could start a religion or church or practice and people could show up at a session of this congregation. um, Congregation, (laughs) yeah, conflagration. And then... (laughs) We could just talk about what we would want a practice or a path or Mm. a religion to be. And we could all just um, figure out what it is that people want. Mm. And, um, yeah, it occurred to me that I'm not sure that's ever been done. Like a marketing research approach, like like what start with the needs and then meet them rather than start with some revelation from supposedly some divine being and then force everyone to follow it 
I could see that as potentially being the shape of, of this thing is we just figure out what's between us. I, I agree that maybe a needs assessment, what is it that we want it to do and, and then figure out means by which we might meet it. I mean, I think all of us and particularly Andrew has warehoused like many notions about the shape of different practices and world religions and stuff. So mm. we already have a lot of that lore that we could mm. bring to bear, you know, because I think that a lot of these spiritual, religious practices and so forth, they all seem kind of siloed. But why not just let them all be free and pick and choose those aspects of all these practices that we kind of like or think are useful and mm. then put them together and start doing it. And also it strikes me that uh, why should it be fixed? You know, why should it be always one practice, even if it's synthesized from 19 different traditions? How about an evolving practice that keeps moving and uh, evolving or devolving as people wanted to why does it have to have a uh, a fixed form you know yeah why does it have to be bounded yeah i agree since that which most people that enter into a continuum of religious practice they're seeking to remove all the blinders seeking to become mm. boundless and mm. so on yeah I mean, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the Gurdjieff, you know, approach, although I don't really know much about it except anecdotally, but it sounds, my sense of the Gurdjieff people is that they uh, somewhat improvise their practices, but, but I think it's still a situation where kind of the boss man or the boss lady tells everyone what to do. Ours, mm -hmm. I think, sounds like a, a more democratic religion. It does, yeah. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I'm confused. When, when yesterday were you talking about this and why? <laughs> oh, yesterday <clears throat> evening when we were hashing out when we would be speaking now. Oh. And I've noticed Sparrow and I, in talking, we often take excursions, and uh, this was one of the topics that came up. I guess it arose uh, around the idea of the Church of St. John, you know, the idea of um, the Church of St. John being like John Coltrane and John Ashbury. But then Sparrow said, oh, well, we could have lots of Johns, you know, and Joannas maybe. But then it occurred to me that yeah. maybe maybe if when we're going to start something to not start something with anything start from nothing because that's where it all ends <laughs> and begins and i think they have i was i'm a very literal thinker so i was just thinking of these churches around here and around every rural area there's just extra churches that aren't used that are so it just happened in my town in phoenicia they, they just sold the uh Wesleyan Church. It just closed down and they sold it to the Phoenicia Festival of the Voice. No because, kidding. Uh, yeah, like it just petered out finally. You know, there were maybe six members. And uh, in fact, all the churches 
all three churches in this little town are endangered. Or anyway, the Methodist Church, you know, has about eight members. The Catholic Church uh, is so poor that they're not sure that the diocese is going to give them another priest, last I heard. And the priest is uh, old. He's like a retired monk who just volunteered to be the priest here because nobody wanted to do it. And he got zero money. He already had some kind of weird stipend, what's the word, pension for being a monk. So he, very sweet guy, great guy. But then he got some kind of massive heart failure and was in the hospital, last I heard. And they're like, they may not send another one. So like all religion might be extinct in this town within two years. <laughs> Isn't there a synagogue? Is there a synagogue in Phoenicia? Or no, there's no, no synagogue. I mean, there's a synagogue. Uh, nearest synagogue that I know of is in Fleischmann's, which is, you know, kind of a Jewish town or was at one time. There's a conservative synagogue that I've never seen, I don't believe. And I think uh, other than that, you have to go to Woodstock. Hmm. The Woodstock synagogue, which is really in Saugerties, is pretty big. Too big, if you ask me, physically as an object. Well, anyway, I just thought I would say that into the record, and yeah. let's see what might happen. I don't know. Andrew, you might not be so gung-ho on this, but it would occasion like maybe meeting once a week someplace and <laughs> um, of doing this. And, you know, and dare I say, there are all sorts of tax benefits. Oh, yeah. Now you're yeah. talking. We'd need a ritual. A ritual. It's a good point. I mean, do we need a ritual? I would say we need a We need a ritual. We need a story. And we need some sort of sacred text broadly defined. Huh. All at once? Or can we, you know, procrastinate some of it? We can procrastinate. <laughs> so you're... Well, you're what you're saying is that a spiritual path or religion or practice requires those three things? Well, oftentimes, according to Max Weber, uh, most religions start with some sort of charismatic leader as well. Mm -hmm. Either a group, small group, or one individual who has some extraordinary capacity or mag magnetism. It, that just tends to be the case, whether it's Mohammed or Jesus or Moses or, I don't know, L. Ron Hubbard. Mm. Couldn't <laughs> we get a bunch of organ boxes and just collect a bunch of this charisma? Mm. And, and then once we have that charisma, I guess it would be divorced from any incarnate, woman or man or you know whatever you know human hmm. and could um you know we could put it in a in a jar and seal it up you know <laughs> like like um you know you do with genies or something sounds a little bit like judaism where you know you get into the holy of holies in the uh, center of the temple back when the good old days when there was a temple and it's just empty there's just God in there or something. Yeah. So it's kind of a, you know, kind of pure monotheism is uh, 
is that kind of deal. Because, yeah. you know, the Jews are a little weak on these charismatic figures. They, Moses, you know, is uh, punished for his hubris and never enters the promised land. Abraham seems kind of perfect, except for weirdly pretending that his wife is his sister as he's traveling through Egypt. But um, he's certainly not worshipped, and he's very distant. Hmm. The, the Jews have less charisma going on than most. Uh, in Buddhism, for example, has hmm. Buddha. King David, right? King David would be the most charismatic figure from Jewish And King literature. Solomon. I think King, King Solomon, Solomon for, you know, I have a friend who was raised uh, Hasidic, and I think these biblical characters... Uh, you know, are very meaningful. And I'm listening to these lectures about the uh, historical Jesus, which I was going to bring up, maybe. Yeah. And uh, they were they, the guy refers to the Book of Enoch, E-N-O-C-H in English, Enoch. And he's a guy who was taken up directly to heaven. There's a few of them in the Old Testament. I think Elijah, Ezekiel, both yeah. of them. Yeah, that's right. Um, there was a book that came out called Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, mm. which is which was written by a Jewish theologian by the name of John Levinson. And it's all about examples of resurrection in the Jewish Bible. And the, huh. the, uh, the figures that you just mentioned are all named. I would just li I would like to say that um, I'm, I'm interested in this notion of, of a religion, creating a religion. And I think that it's emblematic, from my perspective, of a need to have some sort of spiritual practice. That's that's, uh, that's something that uh, the theologian Paul Tillich, whose work I like quite a bit, argues in his work, or suggests rather, in his work, the dynamics of faith. Hmm. That uh, You know, it's a universal claim that he's making, that uh, even if one chooses to forego a traditional religious identity and practice, most people will feel the need to create something of their own mm. that engages the spiritual part of the heart or whatever metaphysical need that we might have in terms of our webs of meanings that we live in. Mm. He calls mm -hmm. it an ultimate concern, that human persons need an ultimate concern that has to have um, some quality of the infinite to existential disappointment, feelings mm -hmm. of despair, potentially. But not everyone agrees with that, obviously. It's just his theory. I think implicitly people have a spiritual life, you know, have a spiritual life, have a spiritual practice, even if it is, you know, and I think people are unaware of it. It just exists without mm. their connecting with that which is innate, perhaps. And then I was also thinking, Andrew, in terms of this sort of charismatic thing, you know, maybe the Trinity that we are, <laughs> you know, yeah, we could pony up the um, charismatic quotient together. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I feel that there is something holy about conversation. Mm -hmm. And when I think about experiences I've had, occupying like a Buberian shared self or transcending my subjectivity. It's often through 
conversation, not all conversations, obviously, because a lot of conversations are superficial or transactional. Um, but when, when they work, there is mm. a commodiousness that opens up that uh, I, I really feel is holy. And I think uh, Martin Buber would agree. But mm. I think that language can play a role in that shared self. It's not only silence. And I don't know many traditions that celebrate that. At least uh, in Catholicism, mm. there seems to be emphasis on moving away from language. Mm -hmm. Going to some still place in the heart or soul. Um, what about confession, though? Confession seems to me almost precisely what Buber is talking about, some kind of dialogue, like a well, sort of, I mean, at its best, anyway. Yeah, it could be, but um, in traditional confession, the sacrament of um, reconciliation, uh, it's fairly one-sided. Mm. The, the, um, you, you would go in and talk about your sins or what's bothering you, and then you would be given... Um, some prayers to say, and there isn't always a lot of shit. There's almost never sharing on the part of the uh, priest. Mm -hmm. True yeah. enough. Similar to therapy, really. Yeah, similar to therapy, that's right. Just sort of Freudian therapy. Yeah, I guess well, there are other forms of therapy where the uh, therapist is a little bit more involved in the relational equation, but I've mm. never really, really experienced that. Occasionally, a therapist might share a personal story to make a larger point. Yeah, I had a therapist, my favorite therapist, Rita Wolfarth, who, you know, felt it felt very much that we were friends having a conversation. But she, you know, very rarely, if ever, talked about herself. It was more of a feeling you got from her that she was open to being equal to me. Hmm. Sparrow, you're a yeah. big talker. Do you do you feel similar about conversation? Do, is it you do you describe you describe being in conversations with friends and and really valuing that? What, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think Buber might be the philosopher that I most agree with, you know, offhand if I think of every philosophy I love Buber, and I, I don't know if I ever said this in these, you know, podcasts, but somewhere I read that um, Buber, that I and Thou came out the same year as some fundamental book by Freud, uh, you know, something like The Ego, The Id, and The Superego, you know, some foundational work by Freud. And if only <laughs> Western civilization had adopted Buber instead of Freud, uh, you know, everything would be fine now. Hmm. And uh, it does seem generally true to me. I mean, although today I was like lying in bed thinking, you know, I don't take any drugs or drink. Uh, I have no vices except staying up till three in the morning, if that is a vice. And also being addicted to YouTube. But anyway, I was thinking that conversation for me is more of a drug. I experience it as a drug. I mean, I like the idea that it's holy. I kind of agree uh, theoretically that it's holy. But my, my experience of it is that I just go into some kind of crazed state when I'm in a conversation and I can't stop, can't stop conversing. I mean, the, the thing that I value in conversation in part is not necessarily... The silence, because I think, yeah, 
just touching on what some religions valorize is sort of this quietness is that in conversation, my default mode network or my being kind of top heavy and being in my head, you know, of having thoughts and this kind of circuitousness of that condition in conversation, my mind quiets and Mm. a lot of my energy is directed toward listening and that quality of listening is not as much informed by what I characterize as thought as more kind of a feeling like I'm listening to the words I'm listening to the shape that the aggregate of words begins to constitute and then I'm feeling what's being said, the idea, and I'm also feeling a futurity, like I'm feeling where can this go, or what can I add, or, Mm. you know, Mm. what more is there to draw out? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Also, there's kind of a quality of collaboration, particularly in in our conversation last night where we were inventing various religions. Oh, no, and podcasts. We were going to do a podcast called The Johns that's only about people named John. And, uh, you oh, know, there's right. a quality. Like, like one of the most important things that happened to me in my life, according to my Wikipedia page, is that uh, my friends and I, uh, the unbearables of group that I'm a member of, we protested in front of the New Yorker magazine demanding that they publish our poems, and eventually my poems were published in the New Yorker kind of as a direct result of this. So whose idea was it to protest at the New Yorker? This is a question that I'm occasionally asked or ask myself. And the fact is that me and my friend Jim Feast were having a conversation. And in that conversation, the idea came up. And neither of us can remember who thought of it. In a sense, we thought of it together. It was a you know, it's kind of like Lennon and McCartney writing, uh, we can work it out together. It was, you know, there were certain ideas that really are kind of generated, like maybe cubism. People say that about Picasso and Brock, that they, they got to the point they couldn't tell which of their paintings uh, was painted by whom. <laughs> Interestingly, um, do, do you like the essays of Montaigne? Montaigne. Me? Uh, yeah, I do love yeah. Montaigne. I mean, I've yeah. read them very little, but I do love them. Well, apparently, Montaigne only started writing essays after the death of a close friend, mm. whose conversation he um, sorely missed. Mm. And it's a very interesting um, possibility, because once you look at the essays of Montaigne, I mean, they're full of questions, they, they beg collaboration, there are false bottoms. Um, all sorts mm-hmm. of tangents. They have a very conversational feel. They're 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 driven by the interrogative. Um, mm. There's a a conversation partner lurking in the wings. I guess it's the reader. I guess he's moving to the reader now that the uh, friend has passed on. Mm. Mm. But it's the reader in the form that's closer to that which Sparrow identified as in the center of the synagogue or in the mm-hmm. box box up on the altar, that mm. emptiness. 
you know, the pre- the absence presence that mm. do du- not duality exactly, but it's the idea of the revelation and the secret are complementary. Yeah, I wrote this uh, book about meditation and I showed it to a friend of mine and she said this book would make a great movie. There were because the, there's basically two characters in the book. There's one character that's kind of arguing for meditation and one character that's arguing against meditation. She identified within my book, which I thought was one unified book, these two voices that are kind of debating each other. And she thought if you could kind of tease them apart, make them into a movie. I mean, I don't know that I agree with her. Um, you know, it would be a compelling movie. And, and there, I feel a little bit, I could see that in Montaigne. It's almost like he's, is he's writing a play in a way that because the, the, these crazy digressions and twists and turns that he makes in an essay, I don't know, I don't know if it had ever been done before. I don't know that the, I don't know if you guys have read uh, the Roman essays. It seems to me at one point when I was in England, I was reading Cicero, and I don't remember them having so many swivels and uh, dramatic you know, switchbacks as Montaigne has. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Montaigne, I guess he is recognized as the grandfather of the contemporary essay of the modern essay. And certainly Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, picks up where Montaigne left off. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And he's Emerson said that he found in Emerson said that uh, wrote that he found in Montaigne's essays everything he could find in himself. I don't entirely know what that means, but I think it has something uh, to do with the fact that Montaigne's essays really captured something um, common about being human: how the mind works, perhaps how the heart works, mm, how memory mm, works. Mm, that. Mm. Um, that Emerson found to be intimately familiar and modeled his own essays after Montaigne's. I don't know if it was Rilke. I I, I don't think it was Rilke, but it was somebody said that all of the poetic activity, broadly speaking, that he admired or loved or thought worthwhile all appeared to have been written by a common hand, that they were all written by the same being that is passed Mm. through different individuals, but that Mm. there's a Mm. timbre or an emphasis or a kind of shape that seems familiar. Like that. It's an interesting (laughs) idea. It is an yeah. interesting. It reminds idea. me of this thing. I went to the synagogue. We went on. My wife and I went on this kind of crazy visit to Wilmington, Delaware, a couple of weeks ago. And I went to the synagogue. I found a synagogue, and it took a long time to figure out how to get into the synagogue because there was a door and it didn't open. Finally, I walked around the entire building, which was like a block long. Finally, I came back to where I started, and I realized I had to push this button. And, uh, you know, because you never know when a fascist is going to come in and kill everybody in your congregation. So they have to have some kind of security system like you got to press the button 
before you, they let you in to the synagogue. Anyway, the rabbi was saying that Isaiah, to me, Isaiah is kind of the Shakespeare of the Bible. He's, uh, or at least of the Old Testament, you know, he's an incredible writer. Uh, his uh, metaphors, his, you know, those figures of speech, uh, the images are so crazy and beautiful. I mean, I can't, I don't understand Hebrew well enough to really hear the, the beauties of Hebrew. You know, I can understand it a little tiny bit, but not enough to like hear, oh, this is a great line in Hebrew. This is a mediocre line in Hebrew. But nonetheless, in English, you can hear just what a remarkable uh, writer he is. And it turns out he's like five different people. He's a, the book of Isaiah covers 250 years, according to uh, this rabbi. So, uh, you know, very unlikely that he's one guy. Mm. So it's a little bit what you're talking about. You know, that's kind of, yeah. or the way uh, the Hardy Boy books are written, you know, where they're, they're always written by Frank W. Dixon, but Frank W. Dixon kind of inhabits the soul of different, the body of different writers. Going back to the Holy of Holies or whatever that emptiness is, you know, at the back of the synagogue, Sparrow, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's also the analogy, the metaphor of the mountain and mm -hmm. that all of these different spiritual, religious paths, you know, they're all going up this mountain by different routes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that they all converge mm -hmm. at the same mm -hmm. summit. They're all moving mm -hmm. toward the same place, mm -hmm. which is the end of the mountain, I guess, and the beginning of the next. The sky. <laughs> the beginning of the sky, yeah. And beginning also of that which we liken to air or sky, which is also emptiness. And also you have a great view. That's the thing about hiking. You get yeah. to the top and you, things look different. You see how small the uh, houses in your town. There's a mountain next to where I live, and you can climb up it if you have the energy and look down and see this little toy place that is the the town of Phoenicia that seems so real to me. And you can get high up enough that you're kind of like a god looking down on it, thinking... Oh, these poor, pitiful humans with their desires and urges. Here's one going into the post office. Here's one coming out of the Phoenician market. Everybody has their busy little errands that they're running. But up here on the mountain, I can look down and see it all so uh -huh. serenely, bemusedly. Uh-huh. <laughs> A little bit like Nietzsche picking up from the Zoroastrians the figure mm. of the prophet Zarathustra, who mm. comes down off the mountain. Oh, is that right? Is that what happens at the beginning of Thus Spake Zarathustra? Yes. I don't know if I ever said this in one of our meetings, but uh, I remember reading in Black Elk Speaks that uh, he talks about this uh, Sioux Indian chief talks about uh, when he first encountered uh, Western religion, he said he didn't much like uh, Jesus, didn't appeal to him. But he liked the Old Testament because every time anybody needed inspiration, they went to the top of a mountain. 
And that is, I guess, what his tradition does. Hmm. Yeah, there was a period of time in which every week I would climb Overlook. Huh. Yeah, it's an easy climb up the fire road. And it takes this given amount of time. I had a perfect amount of time. I had a dog, you know, up we go. Mm. And I would always have some question that I sought to put in my brain pan and, you know, climb up there with the question. And more often Mm. than not, I got an answer. Mm. From the mountain herself, in a way. Yeah, from there to here, something came to me yeah Hmm. like me with my trees although i don't usually consciously go to my tree with some kind of inquiry but yeah i guess with my tree i feel a little bit of that i guess maybe we've discussed this that kind of boober i thou relationship that the Hmm. two of us are kind of listening to each other that we need each other in some way they need someone to listen to them i need someone to speak to me I was thinking about that recently, Sparrow, because the question came up of that which we experience in the wild or in a forest or in what we call nature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we talked about you talking to the trees. And I had some kind of response that was sort of half-baked and... um, you know, off topic and sort of a, you know, more excursion. But it occurred to me that that which I kind of go into a wilderness situation or backwoods, I guess, is the best I can do. It's often, you know, when I'm really there, I'm outside of language. Mm. Like the, for me being in the forest and really being deep in that communion, though, that which underlies communication is is when i get out of language you know when Mm -hmm. i'm no longer i no longer need to respond you know i'm just just being in this situation say and you and you kind of sense that that you're around a bunch of creatures that don't have language or don't have language in the sense that we have language anyway I, i just would like to add that i hear what you're saying I feel similar when I'm out in the woods, hiking a mountain, but that's only a place that I get to after I work through language, only through language is language conquered. Something that I've noticed when I take a hike is that I almost always have language fragments from previous conversations, Mm. usually that I've had in my life or Mm. with uh, people who are no longer around me, who I miss. I have Mm. language fragments. Um, cycling through my consciousness, almost like mantras. Yeah, they sorry. repeat. Like, you mean they repeat, kind of? Yeah, little stories or fragments from previous conversations of some significance that are returning to me as I'm walking, and eventually the husk of language will be pulled off, and mm. I'll enter into that um, that space that ha- does not have to do or is not grounded by words, but mm. there is a process process mm. getting there. I'm struck by how many conversations I have with people I no longer see. <laughs> Constantly, mm-hmm. I feel. There's that wonderful um, short John Ashbury poem, This Room. The room mm-hmm. I entered was a dream of this room. Surely all those feet on the sofa were mine. The oval portrait of a dog was me at an early age. Something shimmers, 
something is hushed up. We had macaroni for lunch every day except Sunday, when a small quail was induced to be served to us. Why do <laughs> I tell you these things? You are not even here. Uh-huh. You you memorized that poem? I memorized that poem. Wow. Mm. One of my favorites. It's a beautiful poem. Yeah, I have lots of conversations with people, although it seems to me that I have more conversations in my mind with someone I just met that I'm excited by learning their new way of looking at the world. And and I just and I have a fun conversation with them and then I keep it up for the next few hours or days or something. Hmm. Like my new friend Parisa, I gave this reading in the Brooklyn uh, two weeks ago or something, a week ago, two weeks ago. And uh, she read with me, actually. And then it turned out she lived uh, near me in Delhi. Hmm. And, uh, and then we started talking about, just for no reason, about poetry readings, how there should be, I guess maybe because there was a band playing uh, at this reading. It's called, reading is called something like Greetings, I think. It's a oh, yeah, this Jeffrey Joe book. Nelson and Jed exactly. Shahar. And, you know, they played at the Station Hill Intermedia Lab. Right. Uh, I guess last weekend, right? Yeah, Show. right after. I saw them the Thursday. I, I saw them and I read with them or read at, at that event the Thursday before that. I was going to go up to that, but then I busted my knee, so I decided not to. Right. Yeah, yeah. They're a great band. And so I was talking to Parisa and I was saying, yeah, there should be more poetry readings with dancers where someone's reading and someone else is dancing. And I don't know, we had like a whole bunch of ideas between us. And then then we discovered after that that we uh, lived near each other and actually could do a reading series together. (laughs) So uh, and so then I think, you know, maybe for hours or days after that, I was kind of talking to her in my mind, thinking about our reading series. Now I have two new ideas. One is a reading that is entirely in other languages with no translations. You just come to this reading knowing you're not going to understand much of anything. She's, uh, you know, her parents are from Iran. She grew up in Louisiana. She knows, turns out she's not that fluent in Persian. But the, my new idea is, you know, we do a reading. I, I speak fake Hebrew, something that sounds like Hebrew but isn't. And she speaks fake Persian. And that's the reading. <laughs> and then my other idea is we do a reading where we uh, walk through the room. One person reads a poem, stands in a particular place, then then moves to another part of the room. The whole audience has to follow, standing up. It's a standing reading. It's sort of a dance performance in a way, a collective dance performance that is also a reading. Anyway, I told her these two ideas, and she is perfectly fine with them. I think it's it's interesting that those ideas came out of a conversation. Yeah. Um, And I know that if if I spend too long by myself, I end up sort of, I think, uh, in default settings or... um, not necessarily like in dark vortexes, but I, I can't always generate the sort of creative thinking beyond my local preoccupations that I can when I'm in conversation, when I'm in collaboration mm-hmm. with someone. Yeah, I mean, I, again, that's that kind of quiet that I feel in conversation 
and that I find is one of the real therapeutic aspects of talking is a little bit like being in the woods. You kind of get out of your head a bit, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. perhaps. And into and, someone else's head. <laughs> yeah. But the one thing which, I would which, say, Sparrow, is that, you know, I want you to like, you know, this would also be applicable to our, you know, starting this spiritual path. Oh, yeah. So you mean a lot of these ideas can be used or uh, what's the word? Adapted to the uh, religious. Well, you know, not understanding. Um, mm. Yeah, that's my favorite part of religion. I, yeah, I hate religions that are in English. I really, mm. I, I'm really against uh, the Catholic Church going to English. And I have a memory of having heard the Latin Mass, which is probably impossible, because, you know, I was about 12 when I, they changed to English, and I don't know why I would have been in church before that. Uh, but I just think that it's best for everyone if religions are in incomprehensible languages. The, mm -hmm. uh, I almost converted to Islam when I was in Egypt. And you can just walk into a mosque in Egypt and go to the service. And it's so beautiful. So those yeah, beautiful really language, is. Arabic. You're in this domed room, which contains a kind of beautiful silence. There's no images. You're around people that 100% believe in God. It's You don't have to look at a goddamn book. Uh, you know, everything is done orally and you can't understand it. And you feel this sense of devotion. You, you, and of course you do what the person next to you is doing. You get on your knees and then you stand up and you kind of lean on your thighs with your arms, you know, then you stand all the way up and you do all these different kind of yoga like gestures. It's a really delightful religion. Hmm. And really incomprehensible, and yet you understand it all perfectly. It's, you know, there's some great being somewhere that is sustaining us all with life, and uh, you feel it, whether or not it's true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Feels feels true. So uh, I think that uh, you know I I don't like these comprehensible. And then once you hear it, actually, one time I was walking by the mosque. Because uh, I lived in the East Village, like Caddy Corner to a mosque on 11th Street. And they sometimes have these festivals in a small mosque. So they, some of the people would be outside on the sidewalk, like on their rugs. And I just happened to walk by as the sermon. I guess they have sermons. I never knew in Islam. Sermon was going on. And the guy was saying, we have to devote everything to the Lord, every aspect of our life, everything, our whole heart, our whole soul. And that's why it's important to give to the building fund. And it was like, <laughs> oi, you know, this is all these religions. If you knew what they were saying, they were all saying the same thing. Give me money. <laughs> yeah. I and I actually, and speaking of which, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a lunch and you're having a good time and, you know, the uh, hors d'oeuvres have gone, you're having a drink, and then you're into the main course, <laughs> and then dessert's coming, almost ordering coffee. And then somebody says, hey, well, 
you know, do you think we could talk about the Zurich account? Because I want to write this lunch off, you know, to talk a little bit about business. And I'm sort of feeling like maybe we should read a line from the Proverbs of Hell. (laughs) You know, just to get a war in the water. All along. Although I do want to give you my new idea that in our religion, the first religion where we give out money, like instead of collecting money from our parishioners, we give out money, but like small amounts of money. I did this when I was at Cornell University one day. I said there was a desk at the student union, a table, and I just sat behind it, took all my change out, put it on the table and tried to give it to people that were passing by. And it was really hard. People wouldn't take if they thought it was crazy or there was some sort of catch to it. But, uh, you know, we just give out like 35 cents, 80 cents, you know, but just uh-huh. for the sake of giving out money rather than collecting it. I like it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay, so what are we up to? Well, I think I, I mean, know if, where we're up to, but I could be wrong. I think it's my turn. Okay. To, yeah. Seems like it's always your turn, but that's fine. I've heard that before. But I think, <laughs> so, okay, so I'll just read the next one. And it goes right. like this. Let man wear the fell of the lion, woman, the fleece of the sheep. That is a very problematic proverb. It's an mm. unfortunate one to just read for a moment and then and then end, because what the hell is going on here? Isn't he like the world's worst sexist? Oh, and I, I looked up fell. It means uh, pelt. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, the, the meaning, um, seems to be fairly superficial. Mm. I mean, I think his use of a zoomorphology, you know, of using animal things to articulate different human states or attitudes. I don't know, dude. I mean, I got a problem. I mean, the relationship of the lion and the sheep is none too good. I mean, practically speaking. Yeah. Eating your wife, I mean, in a literal sense, seems a little, what's the word, in poor taste. <laughs> mm. Of course, you know, I'll say in his defense, I mean, I did work out a mild defense of this proverb. Mm. Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, we don't live in the 18th century and we don't know even what any of this meant in the 18th century. But, um, and women, you know, at that point were socialized so much to be sheep that it perhaps was not insulting to the end. In fact, it might be saying something like, well, men all by themselves are just beasts, uh, carnivorous jerks without the delicacy and beauty of the sheep, which is also the symbol of Christ the lamb, rather, to, you know, um, soften their lives. But the, but the mm. main point I want to make is, that I think is very modern, is he could be seen as saying that gender is an illusion, is a construct, what is the word? A garment is the word I think I'm looking for. Yeah, In so- other words, the man is wearing this lion's pelt, dressed up like a lion, in order to prove his manliness, and the woman is dressing up as a sheep, but deep down, they're people, they're not lambs and sheeps, 
gender is this kind of um, clothing that we put on ourselves in a literal sense. Women wear dresses and men generally don't. So that mm. it's it's a, just a social myth. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. I read it too. That mm. the man is, is that not right? the lion. Well, the man is not the lion. The woman is not the sheep. They're wearing these. Mm-hmm. I like that metaphor of the garment. I think that's a. I think that's an intriguing reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kind of I'm hip to that and yeah and sort of saw that I also saw I think as we've mentioned before I mean usually when you see somebody in some distance the first thing you notice you know traditionally is oh what gender are they you know is this a man or a woman like mm. that's the tip of the um, Hemingway yeah. iceberg yeah whatever. But now, of course, you know, we have a far more nuanced and interesting sense of gender. So that is, can no longer be true, you know, like we do have to see past our overt disguises of gender. The one thing I, that occurred to me also right now is also, you know, RuPaul. He, <laughs> yeah, he said, we're born naked. And everything else is drag. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed to be that he's talking about drag. The only problem I have with this, you know, progressive reading uh, that I'm giving the the line is the word let. You know, if he, if Blake had written, men wear the fell of the lion, women wear the fleece of the sheep. In other words, he's observing that people put on these false or somewhat illusory sex roles, that would be one thing. But he says, let man wear the fell of the lion. So he's kind of saying, this is what should happen. That's what I read out of let. Maybe, yeah, that's that's another good point. Maybe he is saying that uh, it's it's okay. This would be a reading um, that would make more sense at his historical moment than ours. But it's okay for... uh, men to um tap into masculinity it wasn't that what robert bly was trying to do with various drumming right. circles and iron john that it was possible to be masculine in some traditional ways but also to be virtuous mm-hmm. and, um and that, that that's nothing to be ashamed of i know um in my life in New York City and in the school where I work in, there's this concept of toxic masculinity, this, this lived experience of toxic masculinity, which I see plenty of evidence for. But sometimes it has a negative impact on my own expression of gender and that I don't know what my options are, really, like uh, mm-hmm. anything. So much could be construed or misconstrued as toxic masculinity, even valent and virtuous acts like holding the door open for someone. Or um, being, you know, acting masculine in a traditional way that doesn't necessarily have a victim. Um, could Blake be saying that some of our identity emerges out of biological sex, and you know, it has a natural genetic component to it, and it shouldn't necessarily be a source of shame as long as other people aren't being hurt by it. And when you talk about animals, lions and sheep. You know, they are, they don't have cruelty. They're not exploitative. 
I mean, or so is my understanding. Real lions and real sheep are just being what they are. The the lion eats when he's hungry. The sheep is uh, innocently pursues its life harmlessly. Yeah. So it's it's not uh, necessarily that that being a lion is you know being a man doesn't have to be. As I'm agreeing with you, being a man doesn't have to be, uh, you know, being an asshole. Mm. Yeah, Leonard, Leonard Cohen spoke about this in one of his um, final interviews. Uh, he said he died maybe in 2016. I don't remember exactly. Somewhere around there. But he said in this interview that it was um, he felt it was there was no place for masculine virtue. Mm. But he I don't even know exactly what he meant by that. But he felt in his own life increasingly it was hard to be a man and virtuous and maybe some ways that had hues of traditional sex, gender performance and comportment, mm. but that were increasingly seen through a lens of suspicion. He was, t- he was talking about it as a negative thing. Yeah. Hmm. I think that I know that exists. I wasn't doubting toxic masculinity. No, I didn't get that sense at all. I mean, I guess I really don't feel this confusion about masculinity you know, I don't feel that oppressed as a man. I, I well, guess what? I don't really see myself particularly as a man. I don't yeah. have any urge to do anything masculine. If anything, I just feel mostly intimidated by men who are real men. Yeah. I mean, I live in a in a house of, of women. You know, I have two True. daughters and a wife. And so that I'm, you know, bumbling around in this scene. And um, I'll tell you one form of toxic masculinity that my daughters and my wife have pointed out to me, and that is sometimes if I'm not regular in bathing, if I skip a day, oh yeah, um, you know, if I'm out, you know, chopping wood or you know, chainsawing or you know, et cetera, engaging in those activities that I perform as a caretaker. I sometimes have um, a little bit of body odor. Yeah, I've and they're like, hey, you need to take a shower. It's toxic yeah. for them. <laughs> oh, it really bothers them. Yeah. For me, it's uh, it's um, burping. Sometimes I'll evoke executive privilege. <laughs> what uh, does that mean, executive privilege? Just like belching. And um, for some reason, my wife and daughters are... They have a hard time with that. There are many complaints. I don't do it excessively, but I don't know uh, what they do. They do uh, think of it in sex gender terms. Yeah, my wife burps a whole lot more than I do. And and uh, that's the other thing is that my wife and I are pretty sex uh, gender switched, you know. So, uh, you know, she does most of the masculine things and I do most of the feminine things. So that's, yeah, I mean, she never complains about me being smelly. I just want to say one more thing about this proverb, that Blake is speaking in this poetic language, this uh, suggestive, imagistic language, and he's not saying men should be very masculine, women should be very feminine. He's saying, let man wear the fell of the lion, woman the fleece of the sheep. It's not entirely clear what he means. It's possible that it doesn't mean any of the things that we're, uh, you know, hearing in it. I, if you think about the history of fashion, no one was wearing lion pelts 
<laughs> cheap place in the late 18th century. He, what he's probably saying is like, find your natural state, find your expression, you know, your natural expression mm. um, as a being who happens to have a sex gender identity and, and lean into that. Don't, don't, mm. don't become too estranged from that center. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of those like animal metaphors are about that. So I come to think of it, you know, kind of like, uh, well, if you find out that you have the personality of a jackal, be a jackal. That's what you are. Don't pretend to be uh, a uh, canary. Mm -hmm. Don't let society tell you to be something you're not. It's, it's kind of how I'm reading it. But, but still, I mean, I like that reading, uh, Andrew. I'm just making the point that we really don't know what. Yeah, we don't. We there's no way to really know, and and the, that's part. I think the uncertainty is part of the meaning of it for me, anyway. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.